Good morning, church. Good to see everybody today. It's the last Sunday in June. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Summer's just flying right by. Let's say our monthly memory verse for this month one last time. It's from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5, 2. Wonderful. I wonder, has anyone cleaned out their fridge yet this summer? Oh, there's some laughs. Some of you probably have cleaned out the fridge. You know, the fridge, the refrigerator, is a place where food is supposed to be kept what? Cold, fresh. Every once in a while, you open that door, and in the front of the fridge, normally, a lot of good fresh food there. Those drawers, got the fresh veggies in them, you got some fresh cold cuts. But what often exists in the deep recesses of the fridge. Yeah, the stuff that you might not want to pull out and reheat anymore, right? Oftentimes in the deep recesses of our fridge, sometimes there is food that has mold on it. What do we know about mold? What does mold do? It smells, that's for sure. It does smell, it stinks. It also spreads, Does it not? Left unchecked. Now, if it's in one of those fancy Tupperware containers, it's kind of contained in there. But if it's left unchecked, oftentimes it spreads, sometimes to other food. And sometimes cleaning out the fridge can be uh, a rather stinky, dirty, uh, and disturbing endeavor. We're continuing our study in the book of 1 Corinthians today. We started in chapter 5 last week, and we are going to conclude in chapter 5 this week. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And what has happened is the mold of sin has taken root within the church at Corinth. And Paul's concerned about what might happen If that mold is not cleaned out, what could happen within the body of Christ if sin is able to let go unchecked and unaccounted for, and people who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ are living and doing however they well please? Paul has answers for that in this chapter, and so as we conclude today, we'll explore how Paul says we're to address these things. First Corinthians chapter 5, and before we read, let's pray. Father, we open your word this morning as a living and active word of God, one that is able to transform our hearts and our minds, and we do this, Lord, as a corporate activity. We're gathered together with our eyes in the text. We're ready for you to teach us through your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us take what you would have and apply it in our lives, even as we go outside of these walls today. Help it to help us grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for those that you direct into our pathways, even this week. And we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, starting in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, or a reviler, or drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And as we have said last week, these are difficult words. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 in the book of 1 Corinthians are difficult chapters, and we will be covering them both in full. So I would just remind you to maybe read ahead and prepare. Those of you with students, prepare them for the content over the course of the next few weeks that we're together. We may remember earlier in Paul's letter that he's mentioned those who are actively at work in destroying God's temple, the church. This in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where he said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And there are a few groups of people that Paul has in view in these verses. One group was a group that was stirring up dissension and causing division within the church, while another group is those who were living in open and unrepentant sin within the faith community. And Paul's already exposed that the nature of this sin in chapter 5 is sexual. And in the first five verses, which we reviewed last week, Paul reminded the body that allowing this sin to go unchecked without accountability is unhealthy to the body as a whole. And now, to begin this section, Paul's going to give us an illustration that shows us why this is unhealthy. And he begins this section once again identifying and confronting the boastful indifference of the people of God towards sin. What is Paul doing here? He's ultimately going after pride, which is at the root of all sin. An indifference to or an arrogance regarding or a boasting in sin. These are expressions of pride. Having a background that was heavenly informed by Judaism, Paul had an expert knowledge of the feast. And he's going to lean on this knowledge to begin to use an illustration related to the feast of unleavened bread. Look at verses 6 and 7 of the text. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, 
has been sacrificed. Church, the the Feast of Unleavened Bread takes place following the Passover in the calendar of Judaism, and it lasts for seven days. And this is a feast that recognizes God's faithfulness in saving Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. So what's happening here? What is, what is going on? What's Paul trying to communicate? When the people of Israel fled from the Egyptians, they had to prepare a type of what we may determine as fast food. It was a type of food that would be easy to make while they were on the run. And I know that one of the things that we often talk about in the story of the Exodus is the manna that God provided from heaven in the wilderness. But this manna actually did not begin to provide or to come down for the people until they were already in the wilderness for 30 days. And so for the first month that they were on the run and escaping from Egypt, the people of Israel ate unleavened Bread. This bread would be very fast and easy for them to prepare. And it would become to them as a symbol, one that communicated that the Israelites were leaving Egypt in the dust. No longer would the Israelites worship or live by or adhere to the gods of Egypt. Yahweh, the one true covenant-keeping God, was drawing them out and he was setting them apart and calling them as a people unto himself. And in a way, this feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it represented a cleansing from the influence of the Egyptians, laying aside their old self, which was symbolized by leaven, and putting on their new self, which was symbolized by the removal of of the leaven. By God's grace, the Israelites were now free and clear from the leaven of Egyptian bondage and oppression. Church, for the believer today, we are saved out of the world and baptized into the church. So when we proudly continue in open and blatant, unrepentant sin, there is a risk of corruption to the entire faith community. Paul is saying, don't live as you once were, live as you now are in Christ. And on one hand, we are already sanctified, declared holy and just or righteous by Jesus Before God, Paul recognizes this when he says, look in verse 7, as you really are unleavened. Yet on the other hand, if we as believers are unwilling to recognize and deal with sin that is out in the open, we defile ourselves. And this corruption affects the way we celebrate the victory gained and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is our Passover lamb. 
So Paul is encouraging the church to celebrate this victory, but not with the leaven of the old ways of sin present within our fellowship. Ways that he now summarizes as malice and evil. Our Passover lamb, Jesus, sacrificed once and for all his blood, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. He's paid for those offenses. And church, instead of pride and arrogance towards sin, this reality should move us towards humility, repentance. The family of God is to replace the virus of sin with the virtues that Paul identifies in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Church, our new reality, for those of us who are bought, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, our new reality places a premium on sincerity and truth. The word sincerity here is also a word that was used in the Greek to communicate the idea of purity, one being set apart. In church, we've been freed from the leaven of sexual immorality. And we should celebrate this reality by living in a community that elevates the ideals of purity and truth. That should be what defines our faith community, not sin and idolatry, sexual immorality. Paul's concern to the church It follows Jesus' concern that he had with the Pharisees, does it not? The inside of the cup must be clean for the cup to be an effective tool. A cup with a filthy inside is rather an unattractive tool, both for the cupbearer and for the one she's trying to satisfy with its contents. And notice that in this particular portion of Paul's letter, Paul is less concerned with how the world might have influenced his congregation, and he's far more concerned with his congregation's impact or lack thereof in the world due to the present sin that is not being dealt with. Friends, open and unrepentant sin allowed to go unchecked within a body of Christ makes the church an ineffective tool, an ineffective witness in this world. And we're going to see why a little bit later. Some of the people of God in Corinth, they had confused Paul's words. They had believed that his instructions were actually limiting their interaction with those who had not yet believed that were in the world. It's an idea that Paul's very soon going to correct. One of the great paradoxes of Christianity is that we have been called out of the world, but then sent back into the world. And on one level, this reality depicts the incarnation of Christ. Just as Jesus 
who was not of this world, was sent into the world by God, so too are his disciples who are no longer in this world. We're now considered as strangers or sojourners. We're sent into the world by Jesus. The first line of the Great Commission, friends, says it all. Go into all of the world. What is salt? And what is light if it's not sharing the hope of the gospel with those God directs into our pathways or those whom he's directed us to go to as salt and light? And so there were some in the Corinthian church who had misunderstood or confused how they were to be associating with those who were not yet in Christ. Paul's going to clear this matter up. In verses 9 to 11, take a look. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Though we call this letter 1 Corinthians, from the context here, what we learn is this is probably not the first time that Paul had written to the church in Corinth. He had given them instruction at some point earlier regarding these matters. Instructions which, according to him, they had obviously misunderstood or misapplied. It was not that the people of God are to have no interaction with those outside the church, those who are living according to the ways of the world. We are called out of, but also planted into the world. And Paul acknowledges here that association with the world and those who live in it and even celebrate its sin are unavoidable. Unless we were to be completely taken out of the world, we are living in it. So if God has not taken us out of the physical world, then he must still have work for us to be doing within the world he has sprinkled us into. Love of neighbor, friends, is not a command for the church to just apply to those who are disciples of Jesus. It's a command we are to apply to all peoples. Church, there is a broken world. There's a hurting people. There are lost souls in our own neighborhoods that need to hear and see and experience the power and the hope and the truth of the gospel. And and here in God's word, what we have been given is an incredible gift. It's extraordinary. What we have in these pages is the most comprehensive and consistent, and cohesive truth in all of the world. Amen? It is. We don't have to apologize for it. It's true because God said it's true. Jesus is the greatest gift that humanity's ever been given. And as children of, of God, adopted into the family of God, He's given us this wonderful truth to communicate with others. And so we no longer practice, we no longer live these lifestyles or participate in these sins, but we do not fear the people who are held 
in bondage by them. When Jesus says, go into all the world, he unfetters any chains that might keep us from going to the least of these. And we might do well to learn from the example of Jesus in the Bible. The example of Jesus in the New Testament, who ministered to many who were caught up in all sorts of sexual sins. What was his approach? What were the nature of his words? How did his posture look to them? And Jesus is our greatest example of how we are to respond to the sin present in the unbelieving world. And while remaining perfectly unstained and without blemish himself, he went to those broken in sin. He ministered to their most pressing need. He showed them a better way. And he challenged them to sin no more. That was his example. That's what he did. And church, it's love that moves us towards the hurting. It's love that moves us towards the broken. It's love that moves us towards those who are wrapped up in harmful lifestyles, who may be confused and conflicted, lost, and without Christ in a dark and hopeless world. We are, church, we, we the people, not the building. We are the light of Christ to this world world. He's called us to be sought. He's called us to be light. And the gospel is good news for all people. It's good news for all people living in all kinds of different lifestyles, following all kinds of different religions, influenced and living by all sorts of limited world views. There is a better way, and it's found in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we're called out and we're sent in. It's a both and paradox. We can't give too much emphasis to one at the detriment of the other. It's both. And as a church, we need to recognize that the mission Jesus gave to his very first church planters is the same mission today. And in this portion of Paul's letter, it's interesting. He's much more concerned about how sin from the inside has corrupted and marred the salt and the light of the church to the one who may still be on the outside of the church. Look at verse 11. Why is he writing Who is this section of the letter aimed at? But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat. With such a one. Church, the one that Paul's identified here that we're to be careful in our associations with is the one who claims to be a believer yet continues to live in lifestyles of open and unrepentant sin. 
And notice that Paul identifies more than just sexual sin here. He identifies one who's greedy, one who's wrapped up in idolatry, one who is abusive with their tongue, one who abuses or overindulges in alcohol, even someone who regularly is taking advantage of others, identified here as a swindler. Paul says we should be cautious in even eating or sharing a meal with such a brother or sister. Why? Why? It's a fair question. It's a good question. And I would, I would ask us to just for a moment imagine the scene. Imagine this. You invite a person from within your faith community to your home for a meal. The problem is this person that you've invited to your home is known throughout the broader community as being a fraud. Someone who steals and has misdealings with other people. How might that association that evening at that dinner appear to the believer within your congregation? The one who might have been taken advantage of by that person. How might it appear or affect the testimony of the church as a whole to the one who has not yet believed but has been swindled by that person? What might this communicate about the church and what it allows and the kind of behavior that's tolerated or accepted and maybe even welcomed within the faith community? And might it also communicate to the individual practicing this immoral behavior that as a church, we're okay with it. It's no big deal. You could still come over, share a meal with my family, Now, we had said last week, this doesn't mean we cut off all communication. Most likely what Paul's saying is our communication and interactions with people who are living in open and unrepentant sin needs to be more intentional. A meal may not be the best place. Maybe better to go one-on-one, take a walk, have a difficult conversation, maybe pray with the person. What might sharing a meal communicate to the younger and the less mature believers in the faith within our faith community? That this kind of behavior is acceptable to practice, perhaps. It may appear that we're even approving of it. We have to be careful, church. Paul is calling the church to be cautious in its associations with those within its faith community who are living in blatant, open, unrepentant sin. And Paul suggests, and he's going to soon suggest, that there is a proper way for the church to respond, both to those outside and those inside, whose lives are characterized by this type of sin. And there's some irony here. For the one outside the one that is not yet a believer, freedom from and power over sin has not yet been granted or given. For those who are not in Christ, there is no freedom of or power over sin. And for the one inside the church, freedom over sin and power over sin have been given, but then have been forfeited by the one who claims to be a believer. So what are we to do? We're going to read these two verses at the end of the text today just a bit differently than we did the first time around. 
Starting in verse 12a, we're going to move from 12a to 13a. So follow Paul here, 12a, 13a. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Now jump to 13a. God judges those outside. Church, the unbelieving world is judged according to their unbelief and rejection of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. God judges those outside of the faith. Romans chapter 2 Verses 14 and 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus All will face the judgment seat of Christ. God judges those on the outside. And we covered this before when we went through the Gospel of John. And many of you have this text memorized. It comes shortly after John chapter 3, 16. But it memorizes, uh, sorry, it reiterates this message. And it says this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Paul says, for those outside the church, God will judge them. God will judge them. He will judge the unbelieving world. So what does that mean? Today, in a fellowship our size, those who are both here in the building and those who are watching online, what does that mean for an unbeliever who attends or participates in our faith community? It means that they need to hear the truth of the gospel faithfully communicated over and over and over again. Until the Spirit regenerates them from within and the kindness of God leads them towards repentance of their sin and they turn from their unbelief to Jesus for the salvation of their soul. If you're here today in person or if you're watching online today and you are without Christ feeling purposeless and without hope in this lost and dying world, today, right now even, is a great moment in time to come to Jesus. Right now, you can do it. You can do it at home on your couch. Had a friend that knelt down by the side of his bed after hearing a message and received Christ right there in his bedroom. Went down the stairs weeping. His wife said, what's the matter with you? He said, I just turned my life over to Jesus Christ. His life's never been the same. You can do it right here, right now. Turn your life over to Jesus. If you can hear my voice today in this building and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, He is not your Lord and Savior. Don't leave here today without doing it. There's no reason. It's the greatest thing that would ever happen to you. I promise. And when you do, know that it's not on your own strength or your own effort. But rather, that's a miraculous work of God transforming you from within, 
causing you to recognize your great need for Jesus, producing faith within you and motivating you to turn from your unbelief and place your trust in Him. None of us would do it if it was up to us. Jesus does it. The Bible says, the one that calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Let today, June 27, 2021, let today be that day. Write that one down in your Bible and say, that was the day I turned my life over to Jesus Christ. And the only way I heard the gospel was by coming and participating in a faith community for years and years and years, over and over and over again. And one Sunday morning, June 27, 2021, the Lord woke me up. You'll never forget this day. I promise you, you'll never forget it. That's what I want the person who's listening today that does not know Jesus to hear in this entire message. There's great hope for you. There's great love. There's great mercy. There's grace. There's forgiveness. There's peace and there's joy and there's comfort that's available to you in Jesus Christ today. If you commit your life to him, you'll discover this abundant life, the living water, the sustaining love and the hope to carry you through all of your days here on this earth. There's so much more available when you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for those who are in here today who have already believed and are already believing, look down at verses 12b and 13b. A word of instruction from Paul, a reminder of when it is right to judge within the body of Christ, 12b. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge, 13b? Purge the evil person from among you. Now there's a lot of confusion in the church about when it's right or when it's not right to judge. One of the questions I hear more than ever as a pastor, more than any other question, when is it right to judge? Had somebody asked me that not just but a few weeks ago. Paul gives us clear indication throughout this letter in 1 Corinthians when and how it's okay to judge. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we know we're not to judge the purposes and intentions or motivations of other Christians' heart. These are hidden, and God will ultimately judge these things. We are to hope the best, believe the best, endure together, despite our differences. Christian author John Bloom says that these things include perspectives and words, personality traits, decisions, and even actions unless they are explicitly sinful. End quote. Paul understood this, church, that if he himself, as an apostle and as an early leader in the church, was facing intense scrutiny and judgment and criticism that other Christian ministers coming behind him would also face much of the same. Don't make personal preferences sin issues in the church. We need to give up our judgment of other believers' motivations, intentions, and purposes and focus more concisely on behaviors that the Bible has explicitly identified as sinful, some of which Paul has mentioned here in the text today. This is what Paul has in view in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And his solution, though difficult, is taken directly out of the Old Testament. 
In fact, it's quoted often in the Old Testament, over and over and over again. I put a number of references up there for you today if you want to go and do some personal study. Purge the evil from your midst. And we said last week, and I was honest with you, and I'll be honest with you again, this is hard. This is a hard reality. It's a difficult concept for the church. Oftentimes, these folks that this may need to, to happen with, we love. They've maybe even grown up in our faith community, part of our fellowship. But we have to remember that God's ways are always better, even though we may not always understand them. And God has the best interest of his own holiness and the best interest of the holiness of his called out people in mind here. So I've shared with you before, a few weeks ago, I had this minor surgery on my foot, and it it really has been a pain, both literally speaking and figuratively speaking. I do not like to have my mobility affected. I didn't realize it was going to affect my mobility, and in my mind, I wrestle with if I realized, I don't know if I would have had it done. But I'm so thankful that I had a surgeon that wanted to make sure that she removed all of the cancer cells from the site where the cancer was present. Cancer cells that are left unchecked and without treatment spread and affect the overall health of the body. And to heal and to be healthy again, as healthy as one can be here temporarily on this earth, surgery was needed That which was a part of my body, which was corrupt and acting outside of my body's best interest, guess what? It needed to be cut out and removed. And did it hurt? Yeah, it hurt. And it hurt Thursday and two Thursdays ago when I went in to have sutures removed and all those other things. They had me almost upside down, plucking these things out of my foot. But by, by cutting me open and removing this piece of skin... The surgeon was acting in love. And while the skin that she removed was, after the biopsy, disposed of and tossed away, that is not what we want for a believer that may have to be removed from our faith community. That's not our hope or desire at all. In fact, as Paul said last week, the purpose was that they may come to their senses. They may turn their life over to Jesus Christ and be saved. And for that person, if and when this needs to happen, we should pray. We should hope that they do come to their senses. That they do turn from their sin and repent. And at that time, find restoration back into our faith community. So how might our lives look? In light of these realities, Paul's challenge for us is not to become indifferent or arrogant about sin that is present within our faith community. To be careful to hold a person who is in open and unrepentant sin accountable, even when needed, removing them from fellowship. And we've been asking this gigantic question that we say kind of hangs over the entirety of this book. How do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? And I might say from our text today, we could come to this conclusion. In love, we confront and remove those in open and unrepentant sin from our fellowship. 
This to prioritize holiness and preserve the witness of our faith community for those within or without who may have been harmed or affected by another believer's unrepentant sin. As our team comes today, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, again, we're thankful for the testimony of your word, for the instruction of Paul in this letter. Sometimes, Lord, we acknowledge today that the instruction from your word is not only difficult to hear, but also difficult to apply. And we know in those circumstances and situations that we need to submit to your authority and to your desire for the church. And so we ask your help for us to do that. Lord, I do pray today that if there was anyone listening here in this building or watching online that is not yet a part of your family, that even now in these quiet moments as I pause, they would acknowledge their sin, repent, and turn their life over to you. Lord, you are the great physician. You are the one who is able to heal us, not just from our physical infirmities, but also from the infirmities related to sin that infect our faith communities. So we pray that you would make us aware, challenge our hearts and minds, and help us to live motivated by love in a way that pleases and honors you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.